If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the second book inside of the Old Testament. Uh, my name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here. I get the honor and privilege of kind of being overseer of, of our leadership and also of the primary teacher here. And so on behalf of me and those watching and those here gathered, man, so glad that you have come to join with us as we continue this sermon series through the book of Exodus. So we get today to the book of Exodus, probably one of those famous passages, stories, and I'm going to spend today and next week talking about this, um, God revealing himself to his people. Today is part one. It is very much an introduction. And so for those of you who are going to ask me questions, uh, if I don't cover it today, just stay with me because there's some things I'll dive into next week um, that I'm going to skip over today on purpose um, just because I'm breaking this up and it'll make more sense, I believe, even next week. So Exodus chapter three, uh, let's read the first 12 verses or so. This is the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, a bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near me. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord. When we kicked off a few weeks ago, this sermon series through the book of Exodus, one of the things that I told you that we would cover over and over and over again was this idea of what is known as the providence 
of God, the providence of God. The providence of God is a theological term that we apply to God's sovereignty, which God's sovereignty, think of governance, think of rule, reign, authority. God's providence is his sovereignty at work. The way that I I like to, to define it is this, is that inside of God's providence, we see him unfold his plan, make promises, preserve his people, and flex his power over good and evil to complete his purposes. Some key words there, plan, promises, preservation, power, purposes. That is God's providence. It's his sovereignty at work. And so inside of this passage, we are going to see several of those things kind of unfold before us. We're going to see some planning. We're going to see some promises. We're going to see him flexing his power in order to accomplish and complete his good purposes. And so when we look at the text and context of the passage that I've just read to you, if you remember that we we have met Moses, Moses has been born, the people of Israel have been captive, Moses was radically saved through a miracle, through the hand of God. He was found by Pharaoh's daughter, his, his people's own enemy. He was saved from that. Um, The people were in slavery, they were in bondage, they were being oppressed, being threatened by death itself. Um, The Pharaoh did not want to lose control, and yet Moses' mother, um, through being obedient and faithful and trusting the Lord and fearing him more than fearing man, um, contrives this plan and God's plan, and, and he is rescued, saved, he is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He goes back home to be nursed by his biological mother till he's old enough. Moses then begins to understand that he is Hebrew, living as an Egyptian, and, and, and just really is filled with pity and compassion for the Israelites. Uh, he ends up killing an Egyptian, and in, in doing so, he runs to a land called Midian, which is about a two-day journey from where he was in Egypt. Uh, Forty years pass as he is living in the wilderness. The people of Israel are still in Egypt. They are crying out to God. And as our pastoral candidate, Brian Lewis, preached great last week to us, we saw the cries of the people of God being heard by God. He saw them. He heard them. He knew. He remembered all of those things. And he, he continued to move forward in his plan of deliverance. Yet simultaneously, uh, Moses is a shepherd. He's now married to a Midianite woman, Jethro's daughter, and he is living the rest of his life from his perspective as a shepherd. And the Bible tells us inside of chapter 3 here that as one day um, Moses is going to work, his life was radically changed. How many of you guys have ever had a to-do list, a plan for the day, and then something happened that totally changes the trajectory of that day? Don't you love that? No. If you're type A of any sense, you do not like that. Okay? You're messing with my plan. Moses goes to work. And we learn inside of the scripture that Moses is now 80 years old. The last time when Moses killed the Egyptian and fled to Midian, he is 40 years old. 40 years has now passed. If you look at Moses' life, it's pretty much made up of three 40-year periods. The first 40 years, 
then 40 years in the, in the desert living as a shepherd, and then 40 years of letting the people go and wandering around in the desert, all right? And so we're in that middle 40 years here as we look at Scripture that Moses, and when he has this encounter, he is now 80 years old, right? People in America have been thinking about retirement well before 80 years, right? You're just one, as John Piper would say, just pick up seashells and kind of live out your life, you know, doing your hobbies and, and all those sorts of things. And yet, when you look at that idea and concept, and as it intersects with the scripture, um, that is very mind blowing. Because God is going to use, as he has already used in such people like Abraham and Sarah, old people, or whom we would consider to be old people, to ignite and begin their ministry. So Moses is at work. He's doing whatever shepherds do, right? I would imagine for me, um, I'm so glad that we have people that work in factories. Um, and, and I used to work at here, one, here in Bowling Green. And I'm just going to tell you, I was uh, miserable doing that job um, because it was just a lot of repetitive sorts of things, day in and day out, cha-ching, 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 and I hated it. I was absolutely miserable. I can, that's the reason why I'm also not a shepherd. I don't have any animals except for two dogs and two teenagers, and in that, you, parents of teenagers, you understand that, just herding cats constantly. And so inside of this, Moses is simply going about his, he is on his way to work. They're finding new pasture, and all of a sudden, the Bible tells us that this bush, which would have been common inside the desert of Midian, this, if you've ever been to the desert, even in Arizona, you'll see these sorts of just nasty bushes just all over the place. They, they barely look like they're alive, but they're alive. And he notices that this bush is burning, all right? Again, Maybe inside the desert, that's not an uncommon thing just for because of the heat or because of lightning or whatever. But this bush ignites. But he begins to notice something about this bush. And that this bush is, is, is burning. There's a fire that is coming within it, and yet it is not being consumed. All right? So he steps in to take a closer look. But what happens? The bush now talks to him. In a way of intimacy, inside we see this inside the scripture, and we do something similar in, even inside of modern, modern kind of humanity. Uh, whenever my mama said the name Eric Keith, I knew that that was a different tone. All right? I knew that she meant business. Um, very few people knew that my middle name was Keith, and so to, for it to be used was a sign of both intimacy but also of seriousness. Jennifer Lynn was often rang through the house growing up. Jennifer Lynn, did you do this? No, I did not. All right. But we see this intimacy as in the scripture, though, it necessarily would not have been um, first and middle names, but it would have been the re repetition of their name. And so this bush calls out and says what? Moses. Moses. Inside the Hebrew and inside the Greek language as well, whenever you see that repetitive kind of nature, you, you, it is, is painting before us this picture of intimacy. 
And we see inside of this passage that Moses, as he steps forward, that God, in, in this form of this fire inside of this bush, but the bush isn't being consumed. That means it's not being burnt up. The ashes aren't falling. It's not falling. Imagine a, a tree, a perfectly normal tree, and yet it is on fire and not being consumed. That that is the picture. And as Moses goes to step forward, as I would anytime I see a train wreck, a car wreck, right? We call it turkey necking in Kentucky if you're not from here. That's where you're looking and you can't stop staring at whatever is happening. Moses goes to do that and, Mo and God cries out from the bush, Moses, Moses, don't come any closer. He tells Moses in that moment, stop right there. You cannot come any closer because this is holy ground inside the Middle East. And if you even go to some foreign countries, even now, and even some homes um, here at Mission, whenever you step into the threshold of someone's house, the expectation is for you to take off your shoes. There's nothing special about that except for in the Middle Eastern culture, typically it's a form of respect for whoever's presence you're in. And so God tells Moses that now he is on holy ground to take off his sandals. And then they begin to have this dialogue of which um, God kind of clues Moses in into what's been happening back in Egypt. He says, you know, again, what is he kind of repeats what we saw at the end of chapter two, that I've seen, that I've heard, that I have known, that I have remembered the cries of the Israelites. Again, they've been slaves for 400 years, and not to be disrespectful to God in any way this morning, but God, how long does it take you to kind of see that? Moses is now clued in to what's been taking place. And in that, we see the providence of God as God determines and says to Moses, hey, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to send you. I'm going to do all this stuff. And in part of my plan, I'm going to send you back to Egypt and you are going to deliver my people. Moses begins to complain. And again, I'll talk some more about that next week. And then he tells Moses that, hey, there's this sign. I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to let you know that this is what I'm talking about. And this is what I'm serious. Way out in the future, you and the people of God are going to show back up here and worship. And when you do that, you're going to know that I was serious about my commission to you. Inside of theology, whenever we see God show up in this sort of way, we call it a theophany. All right? It is a physical, visible manifestation of God, all right? I'm going to talk a little bit more about that even next week, but you need to understand that, that God is not a bush, all right? He's not a tree, and yet in his creativity, and yet in, as the creator, he can show up and manifest himself in a variety of different ways, and you can see those throughout Scripture, and again, those are all things that we'll cover at a different time. So what I want us to see inside of this morning is I'm going to do some theological work here, and then I want to try to speak to you uh, pastorally and really try to care for your affections because um, I don't know what your week is like, but my week usually consists of dealing with a lot of people's problems, emotional, physical, illnesses, 
um, the highs and the lows, all those sorts of things. And so um, I believe that this passage really leads us to a moment of really pastorally caring for you and where you are. All right? So that's where we're going. The first thing that I want us to see inside of this passage, because it's what I believe that God reveals about himself, is this. Is that God reveals in this moment his holiness. That God in this moment reveals his holiness. Holiness is a way of describing the uniqueness of God. He is the only one who is perfect. He is the only one with the power to determine the plan and the story of creation and life. As you have heard me say, if you've been around mission before, when I talk about the holiness of God, is I will often say that God is uniquely unique. God, though we are created in God's image, God is not like us, ladies and gentlemen. His level of goodness and his level of, of evil and what he knows to be of evil is, is very different than you and I's understanding. He is not like us. A.W. Tozer, a pastor, scholar, and author, once said this about God's holiness. God's holiness is not simple or simply the, the best we know in a, in a greater version of that. Tozer is saying it's like, it's, it's, not that we, it's not that we know about goodness and then that God is, is infinite to that. No, he, what he says is, is we know nothing of divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. All right? So whatever we think about goodness, if we could think of the, the greatest level of goodness, God is still infinitely Better than that. He is, he is like not even compared. It can't even compare to what we can come up with within our hearts and minds about how good and holy God is. In this moment, God reveals a glimpse of his holiness. Again, a visible manifestation of an invisible God. We need to understand this morning that, that God is essentially everywhere. There is no place that God is not, and yet God can simultaneously be everywhere and yet be specifically in a moment. And in Exodus chapter 3, we get to see one of those glimpses into that. We get to see God show up with inside of this bush that is not being consumed and yet it is burning. We get to see what is known as the holy fire of God. Oftentimes in these theophanies, God will show up as fire. And in this moment, this is what he does. Ever since I was a small kid, I don't know about you, um, but I've been a little bit obsessed with fire. Can anybody relate? I don't know what it is. I can be easily hypnotized by a fire. Um, I love a fireplace. I love the smell of smoke burning, right? Um, uh, we, we're yet to get a, a fire pit at our new-to-us house. And man, I just, I just long for that. I long for sitting out there watching the fire. I love to cook over an open fire. I love the camping. The best part of camping is the fire, okay? It's definitely not sleeping on the ground in a tent with your sweaty friend, 
It's the fire in the woods for me. We, we see inside of, of this kind of thing that is happening that this, this, this fire and that, that if you've ever been to like third and fourth word countries as well, it's like we don't really, you know, kind of um, need fire the same way that these other people do. But, but fire in many places is a life source for these people. Moses is, is turned, he's, he's hypnotized by this, this flame that is speaking to him as God is revealing that, that I am the God of, of your father and God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that, that, that Moses is turned. Now, when we see the idea of fire inside the scripture, it's a frequent element that God kind of reveals himself through. It's an element that he is often seen as. We know that of such things that sometimes God is a fire that destroys. God will show up, he'll send a fire, he'll be the fire, and it destroys things. Think of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Another times when God shows up or he's described as a fire, we see this in Isaiah 6. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, it says that when Jesus comes, or as Jesus is coming, and as he's doing his ministry, that Jesus is baptizing with Holy Spirit and what? Fire. So the first way that God kind of shows up in this fire is he's, he destroys things. The second thing is, is that God is often, often described as a fire who is purifying things. When I was a kid, I grew up, again, in a Pentecostal holiness movement and church. And so they like to talk about Jesus coming back a lot. And every time they talked about it, though, I did not want it to happen because it sounded like the scariest thing I'd ever heard in my life. All they want to talk about how is everything, it's all going to burn anyway. Don't recycle, it's all going to burn, right? Um, and what they missed about that was uh, it has to burn. Why? So that it can be purified. It was a blessing. It wasn't a scary thing. When you really read the Scripture. Also in Hebrew, though, whenever we see fire, um, it is actually a description of love. We see this often inside of the, the Hebrew Scriptures. It's hard to read the Song of Solomon, which is about a man and a woman engaging in, in courtship and dating and intimacy and marriage and all of those sorts of things. It is often described throughout the Scriptures that, that fire is this kind of burning passion within you. We use this inside of English. The great prophet Johnny Cash once said, I went down to a burning ring of what? Fire. And it burns, burns, burns. Right? If you've ever been a 15-year-old male, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is a burning passion within you that you need this love. You need it. You'll get all sorts of dumb over what you believe is love. You lie, still cheat. You'll become a person that your parents have no clue that you are because of that burning. The burning bush, because we see inside the Scripture that God is a consuming fire. And yet, what does the Bible say about this bush? It is not consumed. It's this weird paradox that the bush is consumed, and yet it's not consumed. It's not turning to ash. It will still be there when God is done using it in this way. 
our God, this consuming fire is, is, is within it. It's almost like Moses is peering into it and seeing beyond the twigs itself to see that there's a flame deeper within this bush. The, the fire purifies even this bush because of the holiness of God can't even manifest itself in a bush. Why? Because that too, that bush is also broken because of the fall. The words here reflect that Moses is powerless to do anything about the flame. It's inexhaustible. The fire was not charring or burning or, or using the bush in any way. The fire is self-generated. It is self-existing. Fire, as we know it, needs what? Like You learn this as a very small child. And if you've ever been around me with a flamethrower, or excuse not a flamethrower, I don't have one of those yet. Yet. If you ever have a fire and you have a blower, I'm not saying that everyone should do this, but it is awesome <laughs> to put that blower on that flame. <laughs> we see in, inside of this is that we know from, from science is that a fire needs a fuel source and it needs oxygen, and yet... None of that is being provided for this flame of God's holiness to exist. It is a holy flame. It needs nothing else. It, it simply is. Nothing contributes to God's holy existence. God, who is eternal, who is self-sufficient, fuels and powers and controls His own existence. God speaks to Moses. Moses Moses. And God in that, though, does what? He draws a boundary between the humanity of Moses and to the holiness of God. Do not come any closer. See, Adam and Eve were able to walk in the cool of the day with God and His holiness. But God now cannot be in the full presence of the broken sinful nature of humanity for you will and I will surely die do not come any closer Moses stop it this is the first time inside of the Old Testament that we hear the Hebrew word and I won't pronounce this for you because I probably totally mess it up but it's the Hebrew word for holiness. This is the first time inside of our Old Testament that God says something about His character and nature in, in reference to His holiness. It's important for us to remember this this morning, write this down this morning, is that this, is that we are fearful of God's holiness, not because it is scary and grotesque, but because God's holiness reveals how good he is. Do you get the difference there? We're scared of the boogeyman as children because of what our imagination's picture of this nasty, terrible, grotesque monster that lives in our closet or underneath our beds. Children, guess what? It doesn't exist. 
But oftentimes when we can think about God, we can have this like, oh, that's why I need to fear God. And yet that's not what the scripture portrays as God in his holiness. But rather, we need to be fearful of an almighty God because he literally is so good and you and I are not. That's why he's scary. That's why if you look upon him, you will die. That's why you will melt as wax in a candle before the holiness of an almighty God. Habakkuk 1.13 says, and this is speaking of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrong. God's holiness affects everything, even the ground that Moses is standing on. The ground is holy simply because God is there. The, The ground itself isn't. Ever been to a church service where people were like, everybody take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Anybody? Am I the only one? It's not, just so you know. Because what makes it holy is the Lord. The Lord makes it holy. God's holiness is often compared to our sun. The sun is different than all the other planets that revolve around it. It is the source of life for earth, our planet. We we see its light everywhere, yet it is really, really far away, isn't it? It's both, the sun and its light is both here today, thank goodness, because if not, we'd all freeze to death. And yet it's really far away. It is both here and it is there. It is both near and it is far. The closer you get to the sun, the the more radiant and intense its glory is, its holiness is, the more effect it has on whatever comes close to it. This life giving source that sustains life is the very thing that if we did not have it, we would not exist. And yet simultaneously, If you got close to it, what would it do? It would kill you. It is both good, yet dangerous. Like fire, it must be respected. When we say that we want God to speak to us, have you ever done that? Man, I just wish the Lord would speak. Can I help us with something? We we really don't want that. Because if he was to do it, it would probably shatter everything that we would expect and want him to say to us. God is saying as he kind of stiff arms Moses, again, he's intimate with Moses, he has relationship with Moses, but there is also some sort of distance between himself and Moses. What God is doing in this picture is he's, he's dictating how you and I and others can actually come to his presence. He is the one who is, is the sole reason and, and prohibitor or, or boundary maker. He is the one that gets to determine because of his holiness, this is how you will approach me, church. How many of you guys have ever read First Chronicles? Some good reading there. 
And there's this crazy story. There's this guy named, um, I think his name is Yuza. Anybody remember this story? So the Ark of the Covenant, all right? We'll learn more about that. But it's this box. It's an ark that has some trinkets in it that God deems to put it as like a portion of God's presence. It's, it's almost an, another theophany in some ways. Whenever it was in the presence of the Israelites, guess what they did? They would win wars. But if it was ever captured and taken to somewhere else, they had a tendency to lose. And so David, inside of 1 Chronicles, he's the king. He really wants God to, to bless his people. And so he kind of goes and does some things, and, and they, they, they bring back the Ark of the Covenant. But instead of bringing it back the way that God says for them to bring it back, which was the, the Ark of the Covenant had these rings on the side, and you've probably seen pictures of this, and the, they had poles going through the rings. And so you see these men, because you can't touch the Ark. If you touch the Ark, then you will melt. You'll die. Instead of doing that, David thinks he's going to help God. It's always bad news. They set the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, and they begin to pack it back to the people of God. And as they're doing that, they hit a bump or something, and it goes to tilt over. And, and Yuza doesn't want the ark of God to fall into the mud. And so he, he runs to rescue it and touches it. And God kills him right then. And we're all like, man, that, that seems a little harsh. Like, brother was just trying to help you out, God. He didn't want to get it dirty. I mean, I don't like it when my Nikes get dirty. Just like that. Why? It seems like overkill. But ladies and gentlemen, we understand the holiness of the God. We understand that God did exactly what He had to do in order to continue his character, and his nature. Ladies and gentlemen, God is holy. And he's serious about his holiness. What is man's response to his holiness? Two things. The first thing that we try to do when we encounter God's holiness is make our own selves holy. Right? God is holy. No one will be in heaven unless they are holy and so what do all humans try to do? Make ourselves holy and acceptable. That's why if I was to survey this room, or if we were to go out into our wider city here and do surveys, and we were to ask the question, why should God let you into his heaven? What would they say? A majority of people would say, because I'm good. I'm not as bad as he or she. I'm, I'm a good person. I've got more goods in my good bucket than I got bads in my bad bucket. And when I stand before God in the holy gates, I can hold up the buckets and I can say, God, look at how good I am. And God deems those things as being filthy rags. He says, you'll never be holy enough. It's like you trying to jump across the Grand Canyon, which at its widest point, I have no idea why I know this, is 13 miles wide. You will always die. Every time. Because see, we love to compare ourselves to the holiness of others instead of the holiness of God. 
The second thing that you and I try to do when we come in contact with God's holiness is this, is we try to lessen God's holiness. He doesn't really mean it. Right? Aristotle, the philosopher, said this. He thought of God as a do-nothing king who reigns but doesn't rule. God is not really involved with what's going on in the lives of human beings. Non-Christians do not believe that God is holy. They deny it. They reject it. They are blind to it. As I, as I teach and work on campus, I, I hear this from students all the time who profess to have a relationship with Jesus. That God isn't really involved in my life, and, and as long as I, 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 I'm good enough, God, God, God isn't this mean. God is love, right? And you hear this. We, we love this inside of humanity as well. It's like nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. And yet, there are many people, in America specifically, who profess to have a relationship with Jesus. And they love to emphasize His love while ignoring His what? His holiness. Is God love? Absolutely. But not for the sake of His holiness. God loves His holiness. Remember when Jesus comes back in Revelation 4, we get to peek into the throne room, right? And we see all these kind of weird animal creature, angel sort of things flying around all over the place, and people are laying down their, their crowns. And you remember what they, they're singing to Jesus as he sits upon his throne? They're not saying, love, 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 are they? They are crying out to a, a holy God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is God. He is holy. He is almighty. And He is the only God and thing that is. He is the standard. And yet, inside of our hearts, ladies and gentlemen, we don't really think that God really means it. One of the biggest issues that we're facing in the church, specifically in America, is that we do not understand who God is. And it, ladies and gentlemen, if we get who God is wrong, then everything goes wrong. In Ezekiel chapter 36, it says this, the zeal of God burns for His holiness, His great name. He says this, Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my own holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you come. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, with, which has been profaned among the nations, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before my eyes. For, for many of us, there has been a, a, an inspiration to us over the last 50 or so years in his ministry. And he's recently passed away, and his, his name is R.C. Sproul. And Pastor R.C. Sproul is a great theologian, scholar. Man, I love R.C. Sproul and the, the resources that he has provided through Lincolnier Ministries. 
And several years ago, I think it was in 2014, he was asked this question. He was sitting up in this panel. You know, I don't know why Christians like to do this thing now, but they set a bunch of theologians up front and pastors, and, and they get asked these questions, this, this panel. And he was asked this question. He said, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? That's the question that he was asked. There was this pause, and if you know anything about R.C. Sproul, he's like the nicest, grandpa, Jesus-loving, God-honoring, pastoral, just smart, smart man. R.C. Sproul speaks up. He said, hold on a minute. This creature from the dirt defiled the everlasting holy God. After God had said, the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day and was clothed in nakedness by our grace and had the consequences of a curse supplied for quite some time. But the worst case would, would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of a woman and punished And we're saying that the punishment of Adam was too severe? It takes a moment. And he screams out. Some of you have seen this. What's wrong with you people? What's wrong with you people? And the audience starts to laugh. As he lovingly reprimands them, he, he, he says, the, the, he continues, he says, I'm serious. I mean this. What is wrong with the Christian church today when we don't know who God is and we don't know who we are? The question is, is why wasn't it infinitely more severe for Adam and for us? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? See, brothers and sisters, we want the God of our own imagination. We want the God of our own making. Here we see God demanding a relationship, but on his own terms and in his own terms. Moses did not go to work today seeking God, but rather God showed up and pursued Moses, a shepherd, this 80-year-old man who thought that his life was pretty much he was going to shepherd for the rest of his life and then be buried out the middle of the desert, and God pursues him, shows up, reveals just a tiny drop of his holiness, and it changes everything. The only correct response that you and I should have toward the holiness of God when we stand before him, when we come in contact, when we just kind of skid off and, and see just a glimpse of his holiness, the only true response that we should have, Mission Church, is, is complete and utter surrender and dependence. Because when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, all we can do is turn, bow, as Moses doesn't even want to peer at the, at the bush. All we can do is worship Jesus with all of our lives. Anytime that a man or woman inside the Scripture has this sort of similar encounter with Jesus, with God, excuse me, 
the response is typically always the same. Woe to me, a sinner. A man of, of unclean lips. Habakkuk would say something like, and he, he, if you remember the story of Habakkuk, the, the Israelites are just being ungodly. And, and, and Habakkuk goes up into his tower and he's pleading with God. He's like, God, how long are you going to allow your people to act and to be like this? He's just pleading, crying out to God. God reveals a glimpse of his holiness to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk says something. This is Eric's standard version. It's something of like, like his, his, his very essence had become rotten. When he saw himself compared to a holy God. Mission Church, let's worship Jesus. Last point here. Nah, hopefully you can pick up. And I had not noticed this until I read it this last week. In this last section, I've got to do this really quickly. In this last section, when God tells Moses, I'm going to deliver the people, but I'm going to send you. And Moses has his first complaint. I've never picked this up, and I can't pick this up next week. And so, but I, I think that there's a moment, this is the pastoral care moment, in just the next few minutes. And so I really want you to hear this, church, because some of you, in comparison to God's holiness, need to also be very encouraged and hope-filled today. God says, I'm going to send you. And Moses says, what? Who am I? Right? Moses is like, show me a sign. Anybody ever ask the Lord to send you a sign? Oh, Lord, just send me a sign. If the third car that drives down my street is a white car, I know that's from you. And I'll do it. Moses says, I need a sign. Don't hate on Moses. We would be worse. And have you noticed, I, I want to read this. Please, please listen to this. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this God tells Moses, I'm going to show you a sign, but not right now. Don't you hate that? And when I first read that, I'm just like, gosh, I hate that. And you're going to see that Moses hates it too. God tells him, trust what you can't see. God tells Moses, trust and obey. And then somewhere out in the future, sometime way out there, 
I'll prove to you that I'm a God of my promises. But not right now. Not right now. Isn't this one of the hardest things about following Jesus? Proverbs chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all of your ways. Acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Ladies and gentlemen, if you follow Jesus, let's just be really, really real. If you follow Jesus, life may go terribly bad for you on this earth. He may not remove you from your current pit. Salvation does not mean the removal of earthly oppression. Salvation is not about you removing you from your current circumstances. But rather, salvation is about God saving you in spite of it. God's providence in His sovereign plan, He may choose to even keep you in this very difficult situation. Notice that God doesn't remove Moses' fear, but what? He rather replaces it with something greater. Trust in my promises. Trust in my holiness. Trust in my character. Trust in my plan. I'm not going to show you right now. I need you to trust and obey. you got to step out of the boat, Moses. you got to go back to Egypt. you got to do all these sorts of things. And Moses, as we'll see next week, is going to have all this angst, all this just anxiety, all this wrestling with who am I, and yet God says go. But one day, my promises will come to fruition, and you'll get it. Brothers and sisters, we must fight the drift toward doubt and believing that God isn't going to return. But rather, we really need to long for and trust that He is going to. God's plan may be to never remove you from your current ailment. until he returns or calls you home. And like Moses, he is, he's, he's calling you to believe in something that is, you can't see it. It's, it's untangible. It's, this, it's belief. It is faith. It is trusting in God's promises and who He is and His holiness that one day I may endure this entire life with, with this cancer. I may endure my entire life with this ailment. I may deal with my entire life with all this pain and sorrow, depression, stress, whatever you want to call it, that, that I may live this entire life and you may grow old still struggling with those things in order for your faith to become sight as you take your last breath on this earth and take your first breath into heaven. God's delayed deliverance is not denial of you. 
God's delayed. And I know that some of you in this room, because we've had these conversations and I've shared with you as well. It's like Paul inside the New Testament who continues to plead with the Lord, please remove this from me. Please remove this from me. Please. You're crying out like the Israelites. It's like, God, I just want you to hear me. Please bring some sort of relief. Bring some sort of comfort to this. I'm pleading with the Lord. Lord, remove this thorn from me. 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 And like Paul, he hasn't. But he has now for Paul. And if you are in Christ, he will for you as well. Trust in the Lord. And I know it's hard. No, it's hard. But his delayed deliverance is not a denial of you, but that God is using whatever it is to shape you, mold you, cause you to cling and be utterly dependent upon him anymore because to understand the holiness of God is to understand that he is infinitely worth more than anything on this earth and beyond. is to value Him. And if you did not have this thorn in your flesh, then the temptation would be, and this is what is happening in non-believers' lives, the temptation would be is to live your life as your own personal God. And yet this thorn that is deep within the deep affections of who you are, that you're just begging God, come on, just some sort of numbness, some sort of relief, and nothing comes. We're reminded of this story in Exodus when God promises, I will deliver you, Moses. One day, you will see, I always keep my promise. Church, let us worship that Jesus. Let us worship that God. Because the only one who can provide the holiness that God requires is God Himself. And the holiness of God shines brightest in the person and work of Jesus. And if you are in Christ this morning, one day you step into the throne room of God. And some of y'all, because you're better than me, you're going to have front row seats. I'll be like nosebleed. I'll be like sneaking in. <laughs> I'll be like up against a wall. I saw a Kentucky basketball game when they were good like that. It was packed out. 35,000, 40,000 people. My back was against the back wall rup. That's me in heaven. Like back wall, somebody like Cynthia, she'll be down there real close, right? Alan Bullard, he'll be down there real, real close, right? And Laura will be sitting next to me because she's going to heaven on my, my, my skirt. And so, like, so she'll be right here. We'll be real close. In that moment, Mission Church, we're going to rejoice. The thorn is gone. The delay is gone. The sickness is gone. The mental anguish is gone. The pain and suffering is gone. All of that is going to remove. So, so church, struggling friend, 
brother and sister. Never cease to plead with the Lord to remove it. But also fight the drift into thinking that He isn't good enough to one day seal the deal. Let's pray.